of us when we get done with our time gathering together this morning, uh, that we would be able to say Christ is our sure and steady anchor, uh, that our worth is not in what we own, um, rather than reading this longer passage, bit of a narrative in it, let me pray and ask for God's help as we look to His Word this morning. Father, we humbly bow before You, many of us having recognized already that You are the only anchor that is sure and steadfast, which is why we come back week after week to gather with Your people in Your name to sing Your praise and to be filled up in spirit and in word, desperate for You. It's why we come back knowing that our worth is not in what we own or what we have done or what we will do in the future, but it's in You. That's why we look to You and the cross. We have recognized that. But God, there may be some who are here who have thought that their worth is in what they do, who they are, and what they own as if they could lay that before you on the day when they die or the day when you return. And God, I pray that you would open all of our eyes to see for the first time or to see once again that we have nothing uh, of worth or of value to lay before you. Only our faith in Christ alone. And so let that be an encouragement to us who have believed and to those who haven't. God, would you, would you grant them saving faith this morning? Might you grant them access to that anchor? Might you grant them access to the righteousness that comes from Christ alone? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I, my dad worked for himself as when I was growing up for uh, most of most of his life, and which gave me the privilege of uh, working for dad. And as a teenager, sometimes I thought that was a great privilege, uh, and other times I thought that was not so much of a great pri privilege. Um, and I don't know when you got your uh, first job. Uh, but since dad worked for himself, I got some of those odd end jobs uh, early in life. Um, you know, I want to say I was probably 11, but more likely it was probably like 14 when uh, child labor began at the Sloan home. And uh, really my first job was uh, hanging doors uh, with flyers for my dad's newfound roofing company. Uh, construction company. And so I'd get dropped off early in the morning uh, before cell phones. Uh, I'd have maybe a quarter in my pocket, uh, maybe a couple quarters in case I had to call twice uh, or something like that. Um, but I'd have, I'd get dropped off with a backpack full of flyers and would go and hang all of these doors. And then when I'd get 
rid of flyers, then, you know, I'd have to sit and wait at the appropriate location until dad came and picked me up and this, that, or the other. And this continued, uh, you know, for m- many years, but well, it, it instilled in me the, this, this idea of hard work, working hard from an early age to earn uh, my keep, to earn a living. And sometimes I thought I deserved quite a bit more than dad was willing to, to pay. And sometimes I think I got paid quite a bit more than uh, what I deserved, uh, getting paid on those, those days still when I broke a federal law and uh, could have been thrown in prison for putting flyers in mailboxes uh, before I knew that that was, uh, could have gone to prison for that. Uh, you know, I still got paid on that time, even when I didn't deserve it. Um, and some of you may, may be like that. You, you can think back to your first job. Uh, bagging groceries, uh, working for your mom or dad, uh, you know, maybe getting a, a job during high school to pay for gas or whatever it may be. And uh, after your two weeks, you were ready and you deserved it. And if something held up your payment, you were frustrated. And, um, and we, we had worked hard. We had earned this. And s- sometimes you thought you deserved a little bit more and you wanted your hourly wage to go up. And sometimes you know, like I know, that you actually didn't deserve it, but you still got paid because you slacked off with your coworkers uh, much longer than you should have. Um, that's good. That, that taught me to work hard. It taught me um, to, to work hard for uh, my finances, to be a good steward of those finances. But one of the things that work does, especially in our American culture, is we take that idea of work and making money and paychecks every two weeks, a salary um, when we get a job, is to apply that then to our spiritual lives and think, the same way I work hard at my job and I deserve this payment is the same in my spiritual life. I have to work hard to be able to deserve this type of payment. And we may not say that. We may say, yeah, we're saved by grace through faith, but we fall back into this idea of works-based righteousness because it's everywhere in our life. It started at an early age, even parents with your kids and kids, you have an an allowance, and you do your chores and you get an allowance. You don't do your chores, you don't get your allowance, right? And we've, we've got this in our homes, we've got this in our jobs, and we have to then work hard to recognize that we're saved by grace through faith, not by our works. We have to work hard to not fall back into that trap. And this passage helps us to do that. Last week, we looked at Romans chapter 3, specifically in verse um, 21 through 26. What we said was one of Paul's great gospel nuggets, uh, that we are saved by faith in Christ alone, that we are made righteous by grace uh, as a gift, that we have been justified, redeemed, Um, to God, that God's wrath had been propitiated for us by Christ Himself. Such great truth, such a great reminder 
uh, of, of our gospel-centered faith. And Paul continues in this um, way of um, proving something is true, in this way of uh, arguing in a, in a, in a sense. Um, earlier in chapter 3, he uh, brought up certain questions that he had heard previously from groups of Jews regarding faith and regarding their heritage and this, that, or the other. Um, we saw that happen in chapter 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew? Or in uh, verse 9, are we Jews any better off? Over and over and over, he's asking these questions and then giving gospel-centered answers. And at first, he was proving that no one is righteous. No, not one. The Jews were better off because they had the Scriptures, but they weren't any better off because they didn't live by faith in accordance with those Scriptures. None had. All had fallen short of the glory of God. All were in need of a Savior. And so he gives that great gospel nugget in 3.21-26, through 26, and then in 27 he picks up that questioning again, and he asks a few more questions with a few more answers. And we see if, if, if 21 through 26 just so clearly defines the, the gospel, then if you're taking notes this morning, I want you to see in these questions that, that first and foremost, the gospel excludes our boasting. The gospel excludes our boasting. His first question is found in verse 27. Look there. And he says, then, based on this gospel of 21 through 26, then what becomes of our boasting? The Jews would have had this question in the back of their minds as they're reading Paul's letter. They who were the possessors of the law of God, they who boasted in the fact that they were God's chosen people and had the Ten Commandments and had the law of God and the Old Testament Scriptures given to them. They boasted in that privilege. Um, they, they were proud of it. But they were also proud in the fact that many of them in, in one form or another had attempted to be righteous according to that law. They had lists not only had they been born in these families, but they from an early age had been taught these laws and had done their best to uh, live out their lives in accordance with these laws. And they could boast and they could say, well, I, I have done this, that, or the other. Um, Paul understood this well. He, he explained his boasting very clearly and in chapter 3 of Philippians, which I'll read it for us in a second. But this is the boasting that, that Paul brings up in this question. Then what becomes of our boasting, they might have asked. And Paul says, it is excluded. It is excluded. It, it's wiped away. It's dismissed. There is no reason to boast. If this gospel of chapter 3, verse 21 through 26 is true, and that we are made righteous by faith, then your high position of having the Scriptures and your 
what was thought as obedience to the law and your boasting in that is removed. It's not based on who you are. It's not based on what you do. It's based on Christ and who He is and what He has done because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. Only Christ has obeyed the law. Only Christ has fulfilled the law. And He was willing to give His life for us that we might be made righteous by grace as a gift through faith. And so boasting of the Jews is radically excluded. And He goes on saying, by what kind of a law? What kind of a law would remove our boasting? By a law of works? No, Paul emphatically says, no, of course not by a law of works, but by a law of faith. For we hold that one is justified, or as we said last week when we looked at that word, one is declared righteous in, a court, in the court of heaven. One is declared righteous in God's eyes by faith apart from works of the law. And so Paul says, according to this gospel, our boasting is excluded. This wasn't only true for the Jews then, it's true for Jews and Gentiles then and now. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 8-9, through and we sing together as a church, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. Our boasting has been excluded by the gospel. By Christ. By His perfect life and His death on the cross. Or... We can go to Philippians, as I mentioned a minute ago. Philippians chapter 3, and in verse 4, Paul is one who could have boasted. He says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Or you could say, though I myself have reason to boast in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh or boasting in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as, a law to, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But, he says, chapter 3, verse 7, but whatever gain I had... I counted as loss. I threw it all out. I considered it rubbish for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth. Surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. 
the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The gospel excludes our boasting. It removes it. The fact that you know the gospel is not because you were so wise in and of yourself. It's not because you deserved it. It's not because you were better than our Cambodian neighbors and had better access to it. It's not because of any of that. It's by grace. It's because God chose to make himself and his good news aware to you. There's nothing. You have nothing to boast. And you'll realize that when you stand before God. You'll realize that once and for all. We're given this kind of truth to try to realize that before we get to that point so that we could spend the rest of our lives like we'll spend the rest of eternity praising Him and thanking Him during those times. Paul says in Galatians 6.14, boast in the cross. We ought to be the biggest, baddest boasters of them all, but not in ourselves, in Christ. It removes our boasting in ourselves, but it gives us a new way of boasting and bragging. And it's not about us. It's not looking to us horizontally. It's looking to Christ vertically and boasting in Him. Jesus died for this reason. Paul would go on to say, that he does not nullify this gift in the gospel. He does not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Think about this. You get to heaven. You think you have all of these works to boast in. Then what you're saying is that Christ died for no reason. I had to do this, that, or the other to be able to earn this. Yeah, Christ died, but I don't know what he died for because I had to do all of these things to earn. But as Christians, we're saying, no, Christ died for me. He died because I have nothing to be able to earn my salvation before the Lord. And so first and foremost, in this question that we see in, in Romans 3 that Paul is answering is that the gospel excludes our boasting. But secondly, the second question he asks shows us that the gospel removes our distinctions. In verse 29, the gospel removes our distinctions. He brings up the question that, that they likely are thinking, or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? To which Paul replies, yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, that is the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith, that is the Gentiles. Is God the God of the Jews only? And Paul says, No, he's the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. Because up to that point, there was a distinction 
a difference, a division, if you will, between Jews and Gentiles, God's chosen people whom He showed His grace towards in a special way, and the rest of the world that were outsiders looking in at God, looking in at God's love for His people, looking in at God's people to to see who the Lord was and what the Lord had done for them. And yet, even from the Old Testament, the reason God chose the Jews specifically and specially was so that all the nations of the world would come to them and come to the Lord by faith and enjoy that blessing. That they would all turn towards the God of the Jews, the one true and living God, and find salvation and find peace and find hope and find restoration in Him and in Him alone. And so, up to this point though, so many of these Jews were continuing to uphold the distinction between Jew and Gentile, even though in the Old Testament that distinction was put there so that the outsiders, the rest of the world, would look in and come and become one with the Lord and one with them in the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, they were upholding this distinction even though Jesus A Jew himself had come to live the life that no one could live and die the death that we all deserve on the cross, thus making a way for all nations, fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament and making a way for everyone to come to salvation by grace through faith. Even on the day when Christ died on the cross, the dividing wall uh, into the Holy of Holies in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, proving that it was God Himself that was removing that dividing wall. Everyone now had access to God. Everyone had access to God through Christ, the Messiah of the Old Testament, the Christ, the Savior, And here, where they ask that question, or is God the God of the Jews only? Is He not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, Paul says, because God is one. There's not one God of the Jews and another God of the Gentiles. God has always, Old Testament and New Testament, been one. The one true and living God. And as God showed Himself to those Jews of the Old Testament, the Gentiles were to leave their false little g-gods behind to come and worship the one true and living big g-god of the Jews. God is one, and He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. And so God removed that very specific distinction of Jew and Gentile at the cross, but, but even at the cross, God removes a host of other distinctions. Not that there, these distinctions are not true of us anymore, but that they have nothing 
to do with salvation, that they don't help you or hurt you in the eyes of the Lord regarding His love and grace and mercy that are poured out for you. Jew and Gentile, man or woman, old or young, black or white or any other shade in between, rich or poor, blue collar or white collar, American, Honduran, Puerto Rican, Nigerian, all are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. This is why Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he removes all distinctions from uh, barriers that hinder uh, to salvation. He removes all distinctions in the body of Christ, which is why there's such great unity in this place. Or there ought to be, because there are no distinctions between us. We're still male and female. We're still of one ethnicity or another, of one color or another. But we're one in Christ first and foremost. And we're able to celebrate the beauty of all of those other distinctions. But they're not hindrances to the gospel, and they're not hindrances to our unity any longer. They're to be celebrated and so the gospel not only excludes our boasting, it not only removes our distinctions, but it upholds the law in verse 31. Last question, he says, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Up to this point, the Jews might have been thinking, well then what good is it? Let's just throw out the law. Let's just live as we want. If there's no boasting in Christ because of obeying the law, and there's no distinction, no special reason that I'm a Jew any longer, then let's just throw it out and do, do things our own way. To which Paul says, by no means. By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold the law. Paul understood that the law was given to Israel for a purpose. And it wasn't necessarily the purpose that they thought it was given to them for. Uh, Galatians 3.19 says that the purpose that God gave the law was to show that we are sinners. To show the, the Jews that they were sinners in need of a Savior. To show us too that we are sinners, that we've fallen short of the glory of God and need a Savior. That was the purpose of the law. And our salvation, according to the gospel, comes by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who alone is righteous. Because we know that we can't earn a righteousness on our own according to that law. Nevertheless, because we've been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, who perfectly obeyed the law and fulfilled the law, we then come up under the law and uphold the law ourselves. We honor those aspects of the law that the Lord calls us to, to honor so that we might honor and glorify Him, so that we might become more and more like Christ who obeyed every bit of that law. This is where you get that phrase that has been well said for centuries 
uh, and, and millennia even, that we're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works. That our good works are not the root of our salvation, but our good works are the fruit of our salvation. We don't uphold the law to earn our righteousness before God. We have been given a righteousness and declared righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, we uphold the law. And so the gospel, it excludes our boasting. It removes our distinctions. And it upholds the law. Unless they not be able to understand this, Paul says, let me go a step further for you and explain this in a way that you may be able to understand. And he brings up guys named Abraham and David. And what we see in this, in this example is really specifically of, of Abraham, um, but David reaffirms this same truth is that Abraham's boasting was excluded. We'll see that in chapter 4, 1 through 8. So in a sense, as Paul's brought up those three questions, he now tries to illustrate that our, uh, the answers to those questions in this following chapter, in chapter 4. First and foremost, that our boasting was excluded, just the same way that Abraham's boasting was excluded. And so he goes to Abraham in chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift. I'm sorry. His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul goes way back. Uh, way back to Abraham, someone whom these Jews who would have been reading this letter and having those questions would have loved, would have honored, would have looked back to and used to probably prove their own stance on certain things. And, and what we have to remember is that the story of Abraham would have been well known to them. Uh, I imagine the story of Abraham is well known to many of you, especially those of you who have been at the fields for the past few months as we finished our series through Genesis 1 through 11 and then spent the next four weeks looking at portraits of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And 
When, you, when we looked at that portrait of Abraham, we were reminded that he was specifically chosen and called out by God to leave his home place and his family behind to, by faith, go to wherever the Lord would call him to go. And that through him, the Lord would bless him. And through him, he would bless all the other nations of the world. And step by step, the Lord called him um, to walk by faith as he would call him. At one point saying that the land that he was standing on was promised to him and that his descendants would come and eventually get to live in that place and to look up to the stars, even though he had no child of his own and was told by God that he would have as many children as there are stars in the sky and, and, and grains of sand on the seashore. And it was his faith in that promise before he had ever had children that he was declared righteous. It wasn't any of his works. It wasn't any of his good works. And it wasn't, um, it was in spite of even his bad works that he was declared righteous. And yet one day the Lord would give him a son. And then the Lord would call him to by faith sacrifice that one and only son. And in his faith he was about to be obedient to that command when the Lord stopped him and his hand and his knife about to kill his, his very own son, uh, to which God said, you've, you've displayed your faith to me. Um, you don't need to continue in this any longer. He had an opportunity to display his faith in that moment. This is the story that Paul knows his readers are familiar with, familiar with, and now we are all reminded of, of that story, uh, to which Paul asked that question, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. If it were his works that made him righteous, then he would have something to boast about. But Paul, but Paul says that's true if you compared Abraham's works to anyone else's works. But we're not comparing someone's works to someone else's works. We're comparing our works to God, to which Paul says he has no reason to boast before God. Not even Abraham, who, who was able to live such a righteous life in many ways, to, who was able to display his faith through his works in being willing to sacrifice his one and only son, not even that would be worth boasting when standing before God, Paul says. For what does the Scripture say? And there in verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15, verse 6, where he says, Genesis 15, 6, uh, is a part of the larger chunk of Scriptures that they had available to them in the Old Testament. Uh, those Scriptures that though Moses had written them down in Genesis, 
he knows that God is the one speaking through them where God says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Counted to him as righteousness. Now, in this passage, I don't know if you've already recognized it, but the word counted is repeated over and over and over. Six times in just 4, 1 through 12. Uh, It's a financial term. It goes back to that illustration I gave to you earlier on regarding my first job, thinking that I worked and was due a certain wage, that I did this, therefore it should be counted to me. It should be um, deposited to me. It should be in my account, my wages that, that I am due. But here, the Scripture says that Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteous. Not he did this, that, or the other, and to top it off was willing to sacrifice his son. Therefore, it was counted to him as righteous. No, his faith came first. Then his works followed. He was faithful to believe in the Lord, and because of his faith in God's eyes, the Lord declared him righteous, counted him righteous. Look in verse 4. It says, Now to the one who works, uh, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. When you work, you are due something. When you go to work, at the end of those two weeks, you're due a wage. Um, When you do a specific job, you're due a wage for that. But not, and and that's true in our earthly life. That's true in our jobs. That may even be true in your homes regarding your chores and your allowance, but it's not true in heaven. It's not true in eternity. It's not true in our spiritual life. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Verse 5, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, which we are, his faith is counted as righteousness. It's a gift. It's grace. This is how Abraham was saved. This is how Moses was saved. This is how any Old Testament saint was saved. They were saved by faith, not by works. But their faith led to a life of works that displayed their honor to the Lord, that glorified the Lord, that upheld the law, that was as righteous as could be in that. So, this is the example of Abraham But Paul goes another step forward and brings up another guy whom they would love. Uh, That is David. David, the one uh, whom we read about in the call to worship this morning from 2 Samuel. The one whom the Lord chose and promised that somebody from his family would sit on the, the throne forever and ever and ever 
That being, of course, Christ, who came from the lineage of David many, many years afterwards, centuries afterwards even. But Paul brings up David in verse 6, and look what he says. Just as David also speaks of the blessing, remember that word, of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Uh, David, like Abraham, realized that his boasting was excluded in, in regards to salvation. And for Abraham, it was excluded because even his most righteous act was not worthy of boasting in God's eyes. But here David's going a whole nother step, saying that not only do my righteous acts not deserve boasting before God, but I've got the most unrighteous acts that I should be ashamed of before the Lord. And he says, "Bless, look at the blessing to the one whom God counts righteous. And he quotes Psalm 32, verse 1 and 2, where David says, blessed, in, kind of like um, Psalm 1, blessed is the man, or like Jesus' beatitudes, blessed are those. This is that same idea. This is David's beatitude in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds, or the Old Testament in Psalm 32 says transgressions. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count his sin. If the Lord was going to count works, He wouldn't be showing us grace and, and mercy. He wouldn't be giving us righteousness because of our works. He'd be giving us punishment because of our works. And David brings that up. He, he recognizes his sinfulness probably better than most. And he says, blessed is the man whom the Lord does not count does not pay as his due for his works. Instead, his transgressions are forgiven. His sins are covered. Uh, blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So in a sense, this is like double grace. Okay? We don't get the punishment that we deserve. That's what, what's mercy. That's what David's bringing up here. We're not getting what we deserve because of our sins. But not only do we not get what we deserve in wrath and punishment because of our sins, we're getting even more than that, which is what Abraham's example is bringing up. We're, we're not just counted in the middle, just as neutral, 
We're counted as righteous. We're declared righteous by faith. So salvation by grace through faith in Christ not only removes your transgressions, doesn't leave you at neutral, and moves you all the way to a righteous standing before God. Double time. Now, those of you that have had the opportunity to work for double pay at work, you know what a blessing that is. Time and a half, sign me up. What, a, what better news is there than double pay in, in heavenly currency when we get to stand before God? Not only are your works not counted against you, but Christ's works are counted for you in your place. Double pay, double grace, mercy on one side, grace on another. Our boasting is excluded because we have nothing to boast in. It would be of no comparison, but through Christ, we have much to boast in. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in Him who pays double to those who repent of their sins and believe in Christ. That's the good news of the gospel that we have in Jesus Christ. Abraham knew this. David understood this. We need to understand this as well. Paul writes of this double pay in a sense in 2 Corinthians 5. In verse 19 first, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then we jump down to verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Not only does God not count our trespasses against Him, in Him we might become the righteousness of God. It's beautiful. It's what we've been looking for, but it goes contrary to the way that we've been raised. It goes contrary to the way our world works. It goes contrary to the lie of Satan, Christian. When you believe that you've been saved by grace, but you walk out of here thinking that you're going to be justified by your works or stand before God based on your works or your lack of bad works. It's not true. It's a lie. We've never been saved by our works. We've been saved by grace through faith. Abraham's boasting was excluded. Our boasting is excluded. But it all, Paul also wanted to illustrate that the distinction of circumcision was removed as well in verses 9 through 12. Those three questions in 27 Chapter 3, 27 through 31 are now being illustrated by Paul in chapter 4. We're going to get to two of them this morning. This is the second one in verse 9 through 12 where they ask that question, is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, Paul said, of Gentiles also. And this is why he illustrates in chapter 4 now, verse 9, Is this blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jew, or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentile? 
Paul answers, we say that faith was counted, counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Old Testament history class, it was before. Thank you, Paul, for telling us the answer. What was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. You can go and read this in Genesis. Earlier he quoted Genesis 15, where Abraham was declared righteous by faith in God's promise. Two chapters later, Genesis 17, the command to circumcise uh, his children. The, the sign and seal of circumcision given. Not just two chapters afterwards, 14 years afterwards. Paul is making a point, removing distinctions here. In verse 11, he received this sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he already had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Why? Why would, why would God do it in that order, essentially? Paul tells us in the middle of verse 11. The purpose, the purpose was to make him the father of all. Circle all. Underline all. All who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would not be counted to them as well. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make Him the Father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The reason, Abraham, that we, even as non-Jews, are able to call him the father of our faith is because by his faith in God, he was declared righteous before he was ever even circumcised. Let's go even another step further. Before even the law of God was given to the nation of Israel, which came during the next book of the Bible, even in Genesis, to Moses. So before circumcision, before the law was even given, Abraham was considered righteous because of his faith in God, his faith in God's promises, so that all people, whether Jews or Gentiles, would be able to experience this being counted righteous before God. Whether they're Old Testament Jews or Old Testament Gentiles who are looking into the Jews' God and into the Jews' lifestyle. If they too would repent of their sins and repent of their idol worship and deny their gods and turn to the Israelites and say, like, like Ruth, 
your God will be my God. Then she too and they too, even though they were Moabites, even though they were Gentiles, they could be welcomed in and be declared righteous by faith. Well, we too are like Ruth. We're like the Moabites. We're Gentiles. And yet Abraham can be, we can call him the father of our faith because he was declared righteous by faith before he had done anything worthwhile. Even though everything he had done in his life was not worth boasting before the Lord, and even though he and David had plenty that they weren't proud of in their life, they were declared righteous before God. And then God, through faithful obedience, made them more and more righteous like they were once and for all declared to be through their lifetime to a point that one day when they died or for us when God returns, they would be fully made righteous and glorified in God's eyes. This is what the gospel does for us. It removes all of our boasting, our our worst work, is not counted against us, and our best work is nothing in comparison to the Lord. It removes our boasting. It, it removes our distinctions, uh, ones that were intentionally set up by God in the Old Testament to display His glory between Jews and Gentiles, and walls and distinctions that we or our cultures have built up. It, it removes them all. It demolishes them all. Are all of our distinctions, and yet at the same time it upholds the law. And so, if we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and we have been declared righteous, not only has our boasting been excluded, not only have distinctions been removed, but we too uphold the law. We honor the commandments of God's Word because they're a guide to holiness. They're a guide to be more like Christ. Since Christ fully obeyed the law and fulfilled the law, so far as we obey the law, we are becoming more like Christ. They're our guide. We know we're not saved by upholding the law, but because we've been saved and been made righteous, we uphold the law to honor and glorify Him. This is our encouragement. This is our, our challenge. If, we're not, if we haven't got what we do deserve in wrath and judgment and condemnation, and we haven't just been left neutral, but we've been made righteous in God's eyes and saved not only from hell but to heaven, then why wouldn't we give everything else that we have in this life? Breath, finances, time, gifts, talents, resources, family, jobs, um, all of those things to the Lord to uphold His Word, to uphold His Son, to uphold the Gospel so that others might look in. Others might look into your life and hear what's on your lips and see what's lived out in your life. And you have the opportunity in that moment to say, not me, 
Christ. Not to boast in yourself because you are such a great person and that God is privileged to have you, but because you're not, and yet he still did anyways. And you get to point them to Christ. You get to invite them to repent of their sins as you have and to by faith in Christ accept the gift of salvation and be made righteous in God's eyes too. So consider that this morning, Christian. Consider whether or not the gospel has had that type of impact in your life. Has the gospel removed your boasting in yourself and given you a new way to boast in Christ? Christian, has the gospel removed distinctions in your life that you had before you were a Christian? Christian, has the gospel encouraged you to honor the Lord in obeying His Word more than ever before now that you have realized that you've been saved by grace through faith. And if you've yet to put your faith in Jesus, if you know in the depths of your heart, if you were to stand before God, you know you have no righteousness of your own and you deserve to be separated from God for all eternity. Realize in the, in the gospel, not in your works, not in my works that I could give to you, but in Christ and Christ alone. In his works, especially in his work of faithful obedience to willingly lay down his life on the cross, to be buried in the tomb and to rise from the dead on the third day, just as he took up his life from the dead, if you, having repented of your sins, have believed in him, he too will take your life up. And resurrect you from the grave to spend eternity with him forever in heaven. And by faith, right now, will declare you righteous before God. And will spend all of your years here on this earth making you righteous as he gives you his spirit. As he gives you understanding to his word to make you more and more like him. Trust him today. Trust not yourself. Trust not the ways of the world. Trust Him for your salvation by faith alone. Let's pray.